ago, People Magazine once undertook a, a part serious, part tongue-in-cheek survey of its readers on the subject of sin. The results were eventually published as a syndex, with each sin rated by a sin coefficient. The outcome is both amusing and very instructive. For instance, sins like murder, child abuse, and spying against one's country were rated as the worst sins in ascending order, with smoking, swearing, and illegal videotaping far, far down the list. Parking in a handicapped spot was rated surprisingly high. Whereas unmarried live togethers got off lightly by comparison. Cutting in front of someone in the checkout line was deemed, get this, worse than divorce by comparison or capital punishment. Predictably, corporate sin was not mentioned at all. The survey concluded, quote, overall, readers said they commit about 4.64 sins per month. Is that you? Of course, as someone has pointed out, calculating our sins according to our standards is not this easy, nor is it precise. But in the Bible, sin is not just a few bad acts that we do, is it? It is a power that characterizes all of humanity and short of the redemptive power of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross for the forgiveness of those sins, we would be absolutely with no hope. Romans chapter 3, for example. Turn to Romans chapter 3 if you have your Bibles. Verse 9. The testimony of Scripture says this, What then, are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Verse 18 says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, as the writer Dorothy Sayers once said, sin is a deep interior dislocation at the very center of the human personality. 20th century poet W.H. Auden called sin, quote, the error bred in the bone, unquote. Well, I'm here to tell you it's not bred in the bone, but rooted in the heart. And we continually need the saving power of Christ to overcome its grip on us, amen? Even as Christians, we do, amen? If there's one thing that we have encountered over the weeks we've been studying the letter of James, it's, not, it's that not one of us is immune to the conviction of the Holy Spirit as he brings the truth of the word to bear on our souls. Let me ask you this morning, for those of you that have been here throughout this series thus far, have you felt that conviction? Because if you haven't, then the next query I would make is this, as we just read in Romans 3.18, is there no fear of God before our eyes? The scripture is clear that the fear of the Lord is the gate by which a man or a woman enters into heavenly wisdom. It comes by way of God's revelation. It comes by knowing God. And that's the point James is driving home in our present passage this morning. If you want to turn there in James chapter 3. Today I want to take the time to review where we left off last time because it's been a few weeks since we've been there, since I've been up here uh, preaching out of James. Look a little more closely at the last section of this text of which we started last time before us. So follow along with me as I, as I read James chapter 3 verses 13 through 18. 
Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Wisdom is the obvious keynote of this section, isn't it? And specifically, the extreme contrast between God's wisdom, which comes down from above, and human wisdom, which James identifies as earthbound, natural, and ultimately rooted in the evil one, according to verse 15. So, as I previously stated, James is giving us the wow factor here in this text, God's wisdom on wisdom. And as we saw last time, he outlines two kinds of wisdom in this text, godly and godless. And he's calling us to discernment on these two things. How can you tell whether or not you or I, me or any of us are operating from a place of true biblical wisdom? How do you know that? How can you identify it? Well, James says here is the raw truth on the issue. True wisdom is identified by the quality of life that it produces. And there are four things that James wants us to recognize, as I outlined last week, last time, which I broke down into four key words. To evaluate, demonstrate, differentiate, and appropriate. You remember that? So let's review a little bit more. Recognize the call for personal examination, James says in the first verse. He says, evaluate. Who among you, he asks rhetorically, is wise in understanding? Who would dare answer the question in the affirmative? Would you? Are you wise in understanding? Like the writer of Proverbs, James confronts all of us with this stark comparison. True wisdom versus false wisdom. Heavenly wisdom versus worldly wisdom. Godly wisdom versus human wisdom. And spiritual wisdom versus secular wisdom, which in fact is not wisdom at all, according to the Bible. Rather, the scriptures characterize it as what? Somebody say it. Foolishness, absolutely right. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 14, the first three verses. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. We just read that in Romans, didn't we? The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand. Who among you is wise and understanding? The Lord's checking it out to see if any of us are. To see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. That's Psalm 14. The fool in this context is not referring to someone with a mental deficiency. You understand that, right? We're talking about someone who has moral perversity. It's a practical atheism that they're talking about, the psalmist is talking about here, as opposed to a theoretical one. In other words, the fool is the one who conducts his life as if there were no God. And in essence, that can sometimes describe the way people behave toward each other in the church, can it? To our shame and to our hurt, we tend to place that conduct very, very low on the sin index, don't we? In the words of James, my brethren, these things ought not to be this way. 
The true wisdom to which James is referring in James chapter 3 here is rooted, however, in the heart of God. It's knowing how to live God's way in God's world. It definitely attributes that there is a God and affirms. It's wisdom that cannot be found by looking at the secular world. Proverbs 17 and verse 24 says this, wisdom is in the presence of the one who has understanding, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. Here's wisdom according to Proverbs 9 verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The real truth of the matter is simply this. Life does not make sense outside of God and will never fully make sense because we are not God. They say that again. Life does not make sense outside of God and will never fully make sense because we are not God. That drives us to humility, doesn't it? True wisdom emanates from God and comes from knowing him. So, recognize God's call to self-evaluation. James said, evaluate. Who among you is wise and understanding? Only the one who fears the Lord is wise and understanding. And how do you know if you really fear the Lord? Well, James gives us another point and a clear picture of what this does and does not look like. In verses, second half of verse 13 and in verse 14, we find that James says, you need to recognize the need for, practical, for a practical incarnation. Not a practical atheism, a practical incarnation of who God is in your life. Verse 13, let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. James says, let him show it. In other words, prove it by your life. True wisdom then does the right thing in the right way at the right time for the right purpose. And God is at the center of all of that. As Jesus put it, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Again, true wisdom is identified by the quality of the life that it produces. So the question is, in light of verses 13 and 14 here so far, is godly wisdom shaping you? Is it shaping me? Is it shaping your conduct, your behavior, not just your words, but your deeds? How does it seem to those around you if we were to ask your peers? James qualifies the behavior that stems from true wisdom as good. He says here, let him show by his what? Good behavior. Well, what does that mean? Well, it, the word really means praiseworthy, noble, morally excellent. It's, it's behavior that honors God and it glorifies God. We just sang about it this morning, right? Not to us, not to us, Lord, but to your name give the glory. Amen? Now, to be clear, when James talks about showing good behavior, he is not and make no mistake about this, he is not advocating for a legalism that is focused on exalting yourself above everybody else. Don't get that wrong. Don't think you're gonna get up in the morning, you're gonna check off all, have all the boxes there, the things you need to do in order to show yourself to be a Christian, and at the end of the night, you go through that mental rehearsing, and then you check off every box. Well, yes, I read my Bible, and I prayed, and I did this, and I did that, and... That's not what James is talking about. Not hardly. The behavior produced by godly wisdom is not designed to attract people to you, but to point people to him. It's characterized, according to James, by having a distinct quality largely missing in worldly circles and sadly enough in many Christian circles today. Humility. Legalism fosters pride. 
True wisdom, godly wisdom, inspires and produces not only good deeds, but deeds done in humility. Or as James puts it here, deeds done in the gentleness of wisdom. And this is how humility works. As I said last time, it maintains a high view of God, a sane view of yourself, and a generous view of others. A high view of God, a sane view of self, and a generous view of others. Now, in contrast to this, James points out the graphic and vivid picture of someone not operating out of this place of true wisdom. And there's absolutely no mistaking it. You can't mess it up. He says in verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Bitter envy and selfish ambition are the polar opposites of morality and humility. If a person claiming to be wise harbors these things in their heart, James says, they are in fact living a lie. It's an arrogant, empty boast, and it's counter to the truth of what God says. This contrast of bitter envy and selfish ambition is a big deal to James, the Lord's half-brother, so much so that he mentions it twice. He mentions it here in verse 14, and then he mentions it again in verse 16. Now, there's nothing more toxic to the unity of the church, the body of Christ, than these two vices. Bitter envy, selfish ambition. I challenge you to bring something forward to me that would be more divisive to church unity. There's nothing more divisive than those two things. The church has thrived and even grown under the harshest of persecution. It has been purified and theologically fine-tuned by the threat of heresy and false doctrine. But you know where the church has crumbled and splintered and been drained of its strength through the subtle and the intravenous infusion of bitter envy and selfish ambition. By way of reminder, I feel I only need to briefly touch on these two things today, but bitter jealousy, what is bitter jealousy? What's James referring to when he talks about this? Well, a person who cultivates this kind of heart harbors hard feelings and resentment towards others who threaten their territory. It usually occurs when someone who differs with them is successful. And to our shame, it is not ranked high on the church's sin decks. Has it? It's often veiled with smooth speech, and it occupies the shameful place of the so-called respectable sin. Jerry Bridges wrote in his book by the same title, Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins That We Tolerate, Sins like slander and gossip and disunity and bitter envy and selfish ambition, that we tend to envy those with whom we most closely identify with, Jerry Bridges says. And we tend to envy them in the very areas that we regard as most significant to us, the things that we value the most. So for me, for example, if somebody gets up here and preaches a really good sermon, If I have bitter envy in my heart, I'm just going to cut that sermon down, no matter how good it was. By the way, that sermon last week that Dave Christensen preached was spot on. Spot on. You see, we don't usually exhibit bitter envy with people that are doing something different than us. Like, for example... Oh, I don't know. Like Glenn and I, the reason that we work so well together in the ministry is because all the things that he was gifted in and all the things that he did, I could not do. It wasn't my gift. He could excel in those things and there was no threat for me being jealous, although I would have liked to have had his gifts. But that's what it is. You you really envy people that do the same thing you do most often. 
See, in other words, we can't stand it when someone who does what we do well does it better than us, ticks us off. Envy robs us of our relationships and our enjoyment of each other. Coupled with bitter jealousy comes the conjoined twin of selfish ambition. I offered a clear biblical example of this last time in the account of Absalom's underhanded revolt and accession to the throne of David in 2 Samuel 15. Selfish ambition is the inclination to use unworthy and divisive means to exalt oneself. Seeking power by unjust means, manipulation, verbal deception, and it happens in the church among so-called brothers and sisters all the time. This, says James, is not the fruit of true godly wisdom. On the contrary, it is humanistic, it is arrogant, and it is a flat-out lie against the truth. He says, true wisdom is humble. It is selfless, not selfish. So what are your aspirations in the church? Think about that. What are your personal aspirations? You may be a ministry leader and you may say that you want to do all that you can for the glory of God. Yet deep down inside, there may be this haunting urge to always look good in front of people, which drives you. Or an intoxicating addiction to receive people's praise, that might drive you. Or an unspoken desire to be out front recognized and well-respected as Jesus called the Pharisees to account on. They liked the respectful greetings in the high places and the chief seats in the synagogues. And so you constantly position yourself to feed those desires even to the hurt of those around you. See, that's selfish ambition. That's what James is talking about. In contrast, the apostle Paul, for example, wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9, he says that it was his ambition in whatever state that he was in, whether in his earthly body or his heavenly one, to be pleasing to him. That was his ambition. And Dave talked about it last week in his message when he talked about we serve and we operate in front of an audience of one. So let me quote Dallas Willard one more time when he said, what matters is not the accomplishments you achieve. What matters is the person you become. True wisdom is identified by the quality of life that it produces. So recognize God's call to self-examination and evaluate. Recognize the need for practical demonstration or incarnation, demonstrate. And thirdly, we saw our need to learn to differentiate between heavenly and earthly wisdom. Recognize the scope of the spiritual contradiction. Verse 15, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. See, the contrast that James sets up here in this text is absolutely graphic. It's vivid, isn't it? And as a church, we need to be able to not just identify the difference between heavenly wisdom and its counterpart, but we must be willing to name it, to call it on the carpet when it manifests itself. But what we do most often is tolerate it and ignore it to our destruction. Why? Because any kind of arrogant boasting, selfish ambition, and lack of humility is by no means from God, James says. It's just not there. And it's not that which comes down out of heaven. Rather, it's classified very strongly, James says, as wisdom from below. Now, what does he mean by that? In verse 15, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. First of all, it's unheavenly. It's unheavenly. It comes from the world. It's earthly, he says. It's from this world, and it's rooted in this world, the here and the now. It's totally from a horizontal perspective. The word is used by Paul, the same word, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, to describe his earthly tent or his body. 
this earthly body. In contrast to the heavenly one. Jesus highlighted this contrast as well when he said to Nicodemus, and I quote in John chapter 3, if I told you earthly things and you don't believe it, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? There's a contrast. Paul wrote to the Philippians of the dangers of this mindset. In Philippians chapter 3, In verse 17, Paul says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I have often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame. And here's the kicker. Who set their mind on earthly things. James says, don't fool yourself. This thinking, this bitter envy and selfish ambition, this kind of thinking that you so-called wisdom is not of God, for the godless world is at odds with God. This is earthly. It's unheavenly. And secondly, he says that it's natural. In other words, it's unspiritual. It's fleshly pertaining to natural life devoid of the spirit. Natural, not spiritual. I heard one pastor recently say, if you use, now see if you can wrap your head around this and follow it. If you use worldly wisdom to think about heavenly wisdom, one's view of heavenly wisdom will be skewed because of the absence of the wisdom necessary to understand the things of God. We are entirely dependent upon God to come and pull back the curtain and reveal himself to us. The Apostle Paul put it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, if you're following along, uh, verses 12 through 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man, same word here, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. James' other brother, Jude, similarly described those who operate according to that kind of wisdom. In Jude 16, we read these words. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts, They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions. They are worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. Wow. And it gets worse, much worse. You're saying, I I don't need any more worse. But this so-called wisdom, which is accompanied by bitter envy and selfish ambition, is not only unheavenly, it's not just unspiritual. James says it's absolutely ungodly. Verse 15, it's not just earthly, natural, it's demonic. This is a rare term, this term for demonic. As a matter of fact, it's used nowhere else in the scripture and it's not used in Greek literature before James. It's almost like he coined the term. And what it refers to is evil. From an evil perspective. In other words, this wisdom smacks of a philosophy and a pattern of thinking so contrary to the truth of God that not only resembles, but might actually proceed from an evil spirit, the devil. This wisdom 
is not from above. It is according to the world, the flesh, and the devil, James says. So here's an extremely important question to wrestle with as we interact with each other and claim to be exercising spiritual wisdom with each other. And I need to ask myself this question as well. All of us do. Here it is. Could your current pattern of thinking or any part of it be endorsed by or even applauded by Satan himself? Could it be? Because that wisdom is antithetical to the wisdom from above. Verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Disorder. It's where we get the word anarchy from. It produces anarchy. The presence of envy and selfish ambition destroys the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. It brings on disorder in every kind of evil imaginable, James says. And God is not the God of confusion, by the way. He's not the God of disorder. Read 1 Corinthians 14, 33. But there's a better way, James says. There's a much better way a more notable kind of wisdom that should characterize us as followers of Christ. And it's 180 degrees counter to what James just described. He says it's wisdom from above. And notice how contrasting this wisdom is in verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable full of mercy and good fruits. It's unwavering and without hypocrisy. In other words, it's just the polar opposite of of earthly, natural, demonic. It's heavenly, godly, and Christ-like. If true wisdom can be identified by the quality of life it produces, then here is what that life looks like, right here in verse 17. It's the exact opposite of what he said earlier. And of preeminent importance is that that wisdom is first, James says, pure and peaceable. God-given wisdom produces internal motives that are free of ill will toward other people and external actions that are edifying, bridge-building, not divisive. Heavenly wisdom produces the opposite of envy and selfish ambition in people who have it and enjoys the blessing of Christ. Remember what Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 8 and 9? He said, blessed are the pure in heart. Why? They shall see God. They'll understand God. They'll not just see him with their eyes, but they'll see him really know who he is because they're pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers, verse 9 says, for they shall be called what? Sons of God. So wisdom from above is first pure and peaceable. Secondly, James says that wisdom from above is gentle and reasonable. And the word used for gentleness here is a different word than he uses in verse 13. The gentleness described here in this verse means yielding even when their rights are violated. Well, that's a tough one, isn't it? You see, we claim our rights. We've got we've to we make it right. We've got to tell people when we're offended because that's what the world tells us to do. And that wisdom, what James says, is from where? It's not from God. It's the kind of yielding that Jesus advocated when he said you should turn the other cheek. The kind that when one is sued for his shirt, gives also his coat. The kind that when asked to walk a mile, walks two. It does not react in kind, but rather seeks a higher ideal. It exhibits humble patience in the face of injustice, trusting God in spite of it. 
it takes the high road of Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 21. You can read it this week. And instead of being overcome by evil and paying it back evil for evil, it overcomes evil with good. See, heavenly wisdom is reasonable, meaning teachable, easily convinced. Now, that doesn't mean gullible. It means compliant, not compromising the truth. It is the opposite of a hard, stubborn, and inflexible spirit. It connotes a softness of spirit and is conciliatory and cooperative. Now, let me ask you, would people characterize your heart as being soft? Or are you hard as nails? That's a tough one, isn't it? And James says that it's something else here. He says, wisdom from above is also merciful and fruitful. Here is something the church desperately needs. Where the world would heap judgment upon people, a man or woman of true wisdom shows compassion instead. If showing grace means blessing people who don't deserve it, Being merciful means not justly punishing those who do deserve it. And that's what God's done to us, isn't it? In Jesus. We didn't deserve salvation. We didn't deserve forgiveness. We didn't deserve self-sacrificial love. But we got it. That's grace. You know what we deserved? We deserved death. We deserved to be crucified like a criminal. But guess who, was, who, who accepted that punishment in our behalf? Jesus. And so we didn't get it. We didn't get what we do deserve. That's mercy. Merciful people act. Merciful people just don't think. They act. This is where I need a lot of work in my soul. I've always said, yeah, I, didn't, I, some, I didn't get the mercy gift. Right? It requires work. Merciful people, though, act, meeting the needs of those around them. That also comes with the blessing of Christ. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they, what? Shall receive mercy. And James later said that mercy triumphs over judgment. And then finally, James says that the wisdom from above is stable and it's sincere. It's unwavering, undivided, impartial, no ambiguity, no double-mindedness, no hypocrisy. True wisdom is steadfast and unwilling to violate the truth. It describes a person that has fixed principles yet not legalistic about it. The wisdom from above is non-hypocritical and it's transparent. You know, hypocrisy, transparency never, never hurt anybody. It's hypocrisy that hurts people, right? Not transparency. A person marked by that kind of wisdom can be counted on and trusted. It's WYSIWYG, right? What you see is what you get. That doesn't mean you go around speaking your mind every time you get the chance. That's not what James means by what you see is what you get. It means that there's no duplicity. What a person is at home is the same as a person is at church, is the same as a person is at work, is the same as a person is with their family and with their friends and with their Christian brothers and sisters. That's the person that you can go to for advice and counsel because they exhibit heavenly wisdom. They love the truth, they tell the truth, they live the truth. Now, obviously, we're all imperfect. I'm not talking about perfectly doing this. What I'm talking is, what is your default? What is your bent? What is your pattern? That's what James is referring to here. And it's interesting to me how James 3, verses 13 through 18 and Galatians 5, verses 19 through 26 intersect with each other. For those of you that remember, Galatians 5 talks about 
the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. You read that juxtaposed with this text and you'll see how uncanny those two texts are. Finally, James says in verse 18 that we need to recognize the fruit of the proper application of heavenly wisdom. In other words, appropriate it. Now that you know what it is, appropriate it. And the seed whose fruit is uh, is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This proverbial statement here can be taken two different ways. Either the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown either by the ones who make peace or for the ones who make peace. In other words, do those who sow in peace raise a harvest harvest of righteousness or do they receive a harvest of righteousness? It's very, very difficult to translate this. Maybe James left it ambiguous because both can be true. We can be sure of one thing, though. Righteousness will not and cannot be produced in the context of human anger and discord, but it can flourish only in the spirit-directed atmosphere of the peace of Christ, amen? So as Paul wrote to the Colossians, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called as one body. Blessed are the peacemakers again, Jesus said, but they shall be called sons of God. So the big question is, do you bear resemblance to your dad? Do I? Meaning your dad. Listen to James. Human wisdom makes a weak foundation. The wisdom of God leads to peace and wholeness, the kind that God desires for us and of us. In a word, shalom. It's the way things are supposed to be. Isaiah 32, verse 17, the fruit of that righteousness will be peace. Its effect will be quietness and confidence forever. See, James is not referring to peace through appeasement. Peace at any price, my friends, is not peace at all. Don't confuse the biblical idea of peace with the world's impoverished contemporary counterpart, the absence of tension. That's not peace. When James ends this section with these words, he's getting at more than simple relational harmony in the church or the absence of conflict. I think he's after the complex Old Testament notion of true, genuine shalom, and that is inextricably linked to the character of God and more specifically in the New Testament, Jesus Christ, who is our peace. After all, as you look at all the preceding virtues that James lists here, Do they not describe who Jesus is? And who we are supposed to be in him? Jesus, as someone said, is the embodiment of the wise and the understanding. When we search for wisdom, you know we ultimately find? Christ. Wisdom culminates in the person of Christ. Perhaps that's why when we read about wisdom in in the Old Testament, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 8, the words so unmistakably describe Jesus Christ that some people have looked at that passage as being, should be interpreted Christologically. I mean, look at Proverbs 8 just for a second. Read a few verses out of Proverbs 8. Beginning in verse four, to you, O men, I call. And see if you don't see Jesus in this. And my voice is to the sons of men. O naive ones, understand prudence and fools understand wisdom. Listen, for I will speak noble things and the opening of my lips will reveal right things. For my mouth will utter truth and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the utterances of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing crooked or perverted in them. They are all straightforward to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Doesn't that describe what Jesus did? 
Verse 12, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom I am understanding. Power is mine. By me, kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles all who judge rightly. I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. Doesn't that sound like Christ? Verse 20, I walk in the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice to endow those who love me with wealth that I may fill their treasuries. Check this out. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. From everlasting, I was established. From the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. Yay, Clayton. (laughs) When he set the sea for its boundaries in verse 29, so that the water would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. Now, therefore, O sons, listen to me, for blessed are they who keep my ways. Heed instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, Jesus says, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorposts. For he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me injures himself. All those who hate me love death. Isn't that a powerful passage? I am convinced That is precisely why James was concerned that we, the body of Christ, evaluate, demonstrate, differentiate, and appropriate the true wisdom that comes from him. But do we? Do we really? I want to leave you with something I ran across in my studies recently that convicted me deeply. I'll let the Holy Spirit do whatever he wants to do with you, but I'll tell you one thing right now. It convicted me. But rather than retell the narrative myself, I felt that to hear it and see it presented by Alistair Begg, as I experienced it for the first time, may also set the stage for a personal and spirit-directed response. So watch this video clip, and then the worship team can come up and close us. Let's suppose that we were able to zip back in time and sneak up on the disciple band uh, just as they were uh, coming out of Jerusalem on their way to Jericho, and unbeknownst to them, uh, they were about to bump into blind Bartimaeus. And as they uh, were sitting having a a cup of water uh, at the well, uh, we, we, we went up and sat on the well as well, and, and we listened to them talk. And as we listened to them talk, we said, excuse me, are, are, you don't happen to be the disciples of Jesus, of Nazareth, do you? And, oh, yes, they said, yes. Yes, we are. They said, oh, I've often wondered what you were like. And then we just sat in silence, and they talked a little more. And the tone was not what you would call encouraging. It didn't, it didn't sound as though they were all having a really nice time. Indeed, there, there were little snippets of conversation that sounded like jealousy or, or rivalry or the potential for embitterment. And so, because of the way we are, we interrupted again and we said, you know, excuse me, but I'm forced to say that from what I've heard about Jesus of Nazareth, you, you folks really don't sound uh, like you are his disciples. You don't sound like a united band of followers. Well, what has happened to you? And then ten heads all turn. And they look at two heads. And the two heads have faces that are beginning to light up like a, like a traffic light at stop. Two red faces. And so we say to the two red faces, who are you? They say, one says, I'm James. The other says, I'm John. He said, are you responsible for this 
disruption here and all this envy and the thing that started? Yeah. What did you do? Well, we asked Jesus if we could sit next to him when he comes into his kingdom. We thought for all kinds of reasons that, I mean, he's going to have to have somebody sit next to him. So James and, and I, says John, we thought it'd be nice one could go on the right and the other could go on the left. And when the ten found out that we'd asked, it just went, it went wild from there. What did Jesus say to you? Well, actually, Mark wrote it down in his gospel. You can read it. This is what he said. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Source, earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. Characteristics, envy, selfish ambition. Results, disorder, and eventually every evil practice. The Bible comes both to warn and to encourage, and always to turn us again to the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom is our only and all of our hope of salvation.